Well, good morning. I just want to again reiterate something John said earlier and uh, from five to, five to seven tonight uh, in the connection corner just inside the front door there to come and, and join us and, and just help uh, celebrate uh, Dean and Jana and their many years of service here. Uh, let me pray. God, thank you for this day. Um, thank you, Lord, that it is a day that you've made, that it is a day where we continue in your Sabbath rest to find um, joy and life and hope and peace and salvation in you. God, speak to us today through your word. Let our hearts be open and ready to receive the message that you'll give us today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I want to begin by showing you a few pictures. Some of them you will recognize, others perhaps not. They all have one thing in common, and I want you to try to figure out what it is, okay? Here we go. Here's the first one. This is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. being shoved backward by a Mississippi State Highway Patrolman on one of the many marches that he participated in. Here's the, his namesake, the original Martin Luther, standing before the Diet of Worms with his famous statement, I cannot and will not recant, he may or may not have said, here I stand, but he did say, God help me. This is Rosa Parks, a famous picture of her sitting on a bus. This is someone, if you're more my age, you might remember this. This is Tank Man. We don't know his name for sure. <laughs> Some people think it may be Wang Weilin. Uh, this is in uh, the late 80s, some of the protests in China. Uh, this is the protest in Tiananmen Square where this man simply went and stood in front of a line of tanks and, and momentarily stopped them. Simple, nonviolent protest, but he stopped them for a while. This is one you may have heard of. This is, and I may butcher her name, I apologize, uh, Malala Yousafzai. This is a Pakistani woman um, who was uh, captured by the Taliban and shot in the head for the crime of teaching young girls to read. Um, she lived and is continuing that work of helping young girls get an education in Pakistan. And this is one that's been making the rounds lately. Do you see the circle guy? This is at the launch of a Nazi ship, I believe in 1939, at a, at a port. This man's name is August Landmesser, German man. He's the only one in this whole group of people not Heiling Hitler. He was in love with a Jewish woman. And in that moment, he stood there, arms crossed, no way. Every one of these people had a moment in time, and in some cases many moments in time, where, where they had to take a stand for what they believed was right. When your moment comes, will you stand? I want you to open your Bibles or your Bible apps to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1 is where we're going to be today. I want to thank you so much for being here. Uh, if you're here uh, to attend the North American this week, I know we've got several in the crowd. Thank you. We're glad you chose to worship here at Chapel Rock this morning. Uh, we're glad you're Hope you have a great convention. I'll probably see you down there at some point. Uh, I'm getting to work with uh, my brother uh, Matt Giebler at Greenwood Christian Church to kind of help coordinate offering and attendance stuff, and so we'll be down there a bunch. And, and I would encourage you, if you haven't yet uh, today, to, to sign up to go, even if it's just for an evening, head down 
down to the, the you know, Indiana Convention Center downtown, and some of the best preaching, best worship you're going to hear uh, in a long time. Uh, it's really, really good stuff. So I want to encourage you to do that. If you're here for the North American, uh, please come say hi. I'd love to, love to greet you personally, and, and thank you for being here. If you're new here at Chapel Rock, my name's Casey. I'd love to hear yours. So I'll be down front. When we're done, please come down and say hi. And if you're joining us online, thanks for logging in from wherever you are. If you're local, we'd love to have you visit us on site. No matter who you are, online, on site, take a second, fill out your connection card. For those of you here, just uh, leave it in the seat, uh, and our ushers will collect it later online. I think you just click in the upper portion of your screen, uh, and you can find that there. We're starting a new sermon series today on the first half of the Old Testament book of Daniel. Over the next six weeks, we're going to be looking at the first six chapters uh, in this book of Daniel. Uh, the first six chapters is really the first half of the book is kind of the narrative half. These are the stories that we know, right? Daniel in the lion's den, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We, you know, uh, Abednego. We 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 know those stories, right? Um, we're not going to look at chapter seven through twelve in this series. That's the prophetic apocalyptic stuff. And I know what some of you are thinking. Well, how come we're not going to look at chapter 7 through 12? Because I don't understand it. <laughs> it's hard, man. It's really hard. Uh, <laughs> so someday when I get it figured out, we'll talk about it. Um, I'm only kind of joking. Uh, <laughs> but what I really want to focus on for the next few weeks is how this prophet Daniel is able to take a stand in a culture that does not share his worldview. In fact, a culture that's hostile to his worldview. How did he do that? Because the situation, the circumstances that we're in are, are substantively different from his. That being said, we live in a culture that is, on a good day, apathetic to our worldview, but most of the time probably hostile in some way, shape, or form what we believe. How do we do that? How do we take a stand for Jesus in a culture that has forgotten God? Now, before we get into the text, there's two principles that we need to talk about. These are two just kind of standard uh, interpretive principles uh, as we study the text that you need to know. Here's the first one. Don't make the background the foreground. When you study the Bible, do not make the background the foreground. Okay? okay, let me explain what I mean. The Daniel plan diet is wonderful. It's good for you. It's healthy. And if you can do this, if you can follow the Daniel plan, you'll probably lose some weight. You'll feel better. You'll, you'll do this. But if you read Daniel chapter 1 and all you get out of it is a diet, you've missed the point. It's fine. It's good. I'm not knocking it. It's okay but don't make the background the foreground. It's, it's a detail in the text, okay? The second principle that we need to talk about is, is that you need to learn to ask this question, is this narrative normative? Is this narrative normative? Let me explain what I mean. In other words, how much of a biblical narrative can we assume to be normal for us? There are some biblical narratives, that, that stories, um, that we go, oh yeah, that, that's a one-to-one -one application, you know. You're walking down the side of a road, and you see somebody laying there, beaten up and bloody, and like, 
you know, the parable of the Good Samaritan ought to jump up in your head. Like, go take care of that dude. All right? That's one to one. There are other biblical narratives, not so much. Peter walking on the water. Anybody ever tried it? <laughs> I, can, I can do it. January when it's frozen. Um, that, that's it. You know, it's, you know, it's not a one-to-one kind of thing. And so you have to ask this question, is narrative normative? Now, by show of hands, let me ask this question. Raise your hand if this is true for you. How many of you are born of noble blood and have been taken into captivity in a foreign land and forced into a program of cultural assimilation and re-education? Okay, I didn't think so. So our circumstances are not a one-to-one comparison here to Daniel's. So how do we apply this to our lives? Well, you can look at places in the story where the basic principle of the text looks like something in your life. You can kind of derive principles from this. The danger there is that you run the risk of sucking all the punch out of the story. You drain it of its narrative power to to change us. It becomes cerebral and intellectually interesting history, but not authoritative for us. You see, God preserved this story for us to speak authoritatively into our lives. And so when you hear God speaking to you through this story, and it may or may not have anything to do with something I say later, it's up to you to obey it. The principles that we learn here... Help us, teach what, help us understand what this story teaches everyone. So that's the interpretive framework that we need to operate under. Let, let me give you a little background before we jump into the text. We're going to look at the first chapter of Daniel. And the book of Daniel was written somewhere around 540 to 535 B.C. Okay? 540, and by the way, when you're, when you're doing B.C., you count down. When you're doing A.D., you count up. So B.C., before Christ, A.D., Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. So that Jesus is the center point of history for the West. All right? So B.C., before Christ, A.D., Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. Though sometimes in the office we refer to any event before March 1, 2016 as B.C., before Casey. So, um, <laughs> a little bit. So part of what's going on here in Daniel is that, that in 605 B.C., the, the king of Babylon came in and destroyed Jerusalem, uh, conquered the southern kingdom of Judah, um, and that really just was kind of the final fulfillment of something that had happened 120 years earlier when the Assyrians came in and conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. And because of both of those things, because of 120 years ago and because of 605 BC, the name of Yahweh God had become discredited among the nations of the ancient Near East. The idea that God Almighty, the God of Israel, Yahweh, was was not stronger than the God of the Assyrians, Asher, than the God of the Canaanite and Hittite peoples, Bel or Baal, the the, the God of the Babylonians, um, Nebo. The idea that, that God is not as strong as those gods. His reputation as God Almighty had been diminished among the nations. And so part of Daniel's purpose in writing this book is for God to get his rightly deserved reputation as the Lord Almighty back in the nations surrounding Israel. Okay? And you've got to understand the historical setting. It's fundamental to understanding not just the narrative half, but especially the prophetic half later. So that's the backdrop. Let's look at the text, Daniel chapter 1, starting in verse 1. 
In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. The word articles there is, it uses, it's like the, the shovels and the meat forks and the utensils that they use to offer the sacrifices. So these things are all like like gold, all right? They're very, very valuable things. And so here's what happens. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put the treasure in the house of his God. In other words, my God's stronger than your God. You know, this is total playground stuff, right? Oh, my dad can beat up your dad. I mean, it's that, okay? Verse three. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve. That is going to be a key phrase this morning, qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. You've probably seen pictures of it. They, they spoke Aramaic, but the, the written language was the cuneiform, little triangles pressed into clay. They had to learn that. So you had to learn about it in school. They had to learn to read and write it. Okay, so, then the king assigned to them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, enter the king's service. Again, a key phrase. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. And by the way, pet peeve, it's Abednego, not Abendigo. Abendigo is what happens when you wrap your car around a pole in icy weather, okay? Um, say it right, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of the Lord my king or my lord the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. So no is the answer. <laughs> Daniel then said to the guard, so this different guy, not the chief official, the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Please, did, by the way, did you notice he used their Hebrew names there? Not their new Babylonian names. Please, test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat, and water to drink. There's the Daniel diet. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. So in other words, for three years, they're vegan, okay? To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. And by the way, this is way more formal. This presentation is way more formal than just, here they are. <laughs> okay, it's, it's very, you know, they're, this is in a, probably a ceremony. There's some symbolism connected with this. They're entering the king's service. Again, a key phrase. Okay. Um, verse 20. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. 
we are not in the same situation that Daniel is in. I mean, nobody raised their hand in my little poll earlier, all right? We're not in the same situation. But there are some parallels here to our experience. And so part of the way that we understand this is we go, well, what from our experience parallels Daniel's experience? Okay, let's create a principle based around that, and that's how we'll understand this text and how it applies to us. Because we're not in the same situation, but we go, okay, well, what parallels can we find? from Daniel's experience and our experience. Okay, let's do that. And there is a lesson here for us. There's actually a couple of lessons for us here this morning. Here's the bottom line. Here's what I think this passage is telling us. It's our big idea this morning. When the people of God take a stand, it must begin with wisdom and kindness. When the people of God take a stand, it must begin with wisdom and kindness. When you take a stand for Jesus in a culture that is either apathetic on a good day or generally probably hostile to God, when you stand for Jesus in a culture that's forgotten God, it has to be a measured stand. It has to begin with wisdom and kindness. So how do you do that? How do you take a measured stand? How do you show wisdom and kindness in a world that's apathetic or hostile to God? I believe this text is in our Bibles to show us how to do that through Daniel's story. Okay? I think there are two lessons here for us this morning. Here's the first one. Number one, you live like God is in control. You live like God is in control. One of the fundamental assertions of Orthodox Christianity is that God actually is in control of the world. But I think we'd all acknowledge that there's a difference between saying that and actually living like it's true. <laughs> I love this quote from Corey Tinboom. This is great. She said, don't bother to give God instructions. Just report for duty. <laughs> I, we'd all acknowledge there's a difference between, oh yeah, God is in control, and then actually living your life that way. And I think that's what Daniel and his friends do in this text. They live that way. They trust that God is in control. And here's how I know that. Three times the text says that, that we read that God gave someone something. In verse 2, it says that God gave control of, of Jehoiakim and Jerusalem to Nebuchadnezzar. The, the NIV translates that he delivered them over, but it's the, word, the Hebrew word gave, okay? In verse 9, we read that God gave the chief official favor toward Daniel, literally grace toward Daniel and his friends. And then in verse 17, we read that God gave these four Judeans with knowledge and understanding, and Daniel the ability to interpret dreams. Every one of those times, even though different English words are used, it's the same word in Hebrew. And the book of Daniel is written in two languages, Hebrew and Aramaic. Um, this chapter's in Hebrew, some of the others are in Aramaic, and then the prophetic stuff, it goes back to Hebrew. Um, we're going to, I don't know Aramaic, <laughs> and I, I'm I don't really know Hebrew, but I, I know enough uh, to study it, and so uh, we'll, we'll be looking at that through this series some. But every time, it's the word forgave, the, the, the word delivered, whatever, it's God gave. This narrative is being driven forward. I mean, everybody in the text is making choices, they're doing stuff, they're deciding things, but what drives the story forward is what God is doing. God gave Jehoiakim in Jerusalem to Nebuchadnezzar. God gave favor toward Daniel and his friends to the chief official. God gave these young men knowledge and understanding. It's what God is doing that's driving the story forward. The lesson here is that we need to live like God is in control because he is. And studying the book of Daniel will make you realize that. 
Understanding this is so vital, especially when life puts you into a situation where you don't have any control. That's what happened to Daniel. When you're in a situation where you've got no control over what's happening to you, you need to lean into Daniel 1. Think about this. These guys, go, they're taken away from everything they've ever known before. They're hauled off to a foreign country, all right? They go from a place of privilege. They were part of the nobility. They were the one percenters, right? They're the upper class. And not just upper class, they're related to the king, probably descendants of King Hezekiah. They go from the, the top to effectively being slaves. Now, they got a cushy gig as a slave, right? I mean, they're going to get all the food they ever need. Their housing's provided by the state. I mean, it's, it's the best possible scenario, which makes you wonder when Daniel takes his stand, if his other friends are like, dude, shut up. This, you, know how, you know what could be? You know, you know what the alternative might be? <laughs> They got a good gig, but they're still slaves. You displease the king, and we read it in the text, I could lose my head, right? They're given new names where they try to erase the Yahweh-oriented names of their past. No, no, no. And even Daniel is named after the god of the Babylonians. They're put in this re-education and propaganda program. You need to understand that they become pawns of the state. They're political pawns by this point. Nebuchadnezzar is a pretty shrewd guy. And not only that, they're forced to learn things that the law of Moses explicitly forbids. You are not to practice divination, the law of Moses says, and they are forced to learn it. Now, here's the thing that blows my mind. They don't push back on any of that, do they? They don't pitch a fit. They don't go, but you can't make me do that. My religion forbids. They don't do any of that. There's not one place in all of that where they go, nope, 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 not doing that, no way. And I'm reading this, and friends, I am put to shame by the amount of trust that they have in the Lord versus what I seem to have on a, on a daily basis. And I have the Holy Spirit. They didn't have it. I'm blown away by how much do they trust that God is in control? We got to learn to live like he's in control. So what's the result of that trust? Well, in verse 20, it says that the king found Daniel and his friends, quote, 10 times better than all the enchanters and magicians in his whole kingdom. Now, I'm Gen X. I was born with a skepticism gene. All right, Generation X, that's just people born from, 19, you know, from uh, what, 1960 to 1980. Um, just by nature tend to be, as far when you look at generations, pretty skeptical. So I read that, and the first thought that popped in my head was, really, 10 times better? <laughs> you know, like, how do you measure that? Like, give me some, like, make that, how do you measure this? Like, you know, every, 90% of what Ashpenaz says is total garbage, but everything Daniel says is great. How do you, 10 times better? Maybe it's not literally true. It may be somewhat nationalistic hyperbole. It, it doesn't mean it's not true, though. It's just more, it's true in a more general way. <laughs> the point here in the text is that it's not the training Daniel received that made him better. It's certainly not the food. We'll talk about that in a little bit. It's not the natural gifting that they had. It's God. The point of the text is that it's God is the one who made him ten times better than everybody else. 
In the same way, it's not the natural gifting that you bring to the table that's going to help our whole community become whole in Christ. It's your supernatural gifting. It's what God is doing in your life that's going to change that. It's, you could Listen, we look at the description of these guys, that's everything we want to be, isn't it? Right? The way they're described, young, fit, handsome, smart, you know, able to do anything. They, any, they could do anything they put their minds to it. We want to be like that. Our culture is addicted to being like that. And the text is saying it's not about their natural stuff. It's about what God is doing in their story. And you may not have any of the qualities that Daniel and his friends had. But it doesn't matter because it's about what God is doing because he's in control. And when you learn to live like he's in control, stuff will start changing around you. Now we need to understand this. And I'll, I'll tell you why. I saw a picture this week that absolutely arrested my attention. In the Sacred Museum of the Vatican, there's a 16th century sculpture by Jean Lorenzo Bernini entitled Habakkuk and the Angel. Here's a picture of it. Habakkuk is one of the other Old Testament prophets. I, I want you to look at this picture. All right? Habakkuk has a, a packed bag. He, you, you see it there, the little basket down on the right. He, he's, he's in motion. He's, he looks like he's stepping forward. And the angel is in front of him, stopping him. And did you notice the angel's grabbing a lock of his hair as if to draw his gaze upward to look up and say, Habakkuk, you need to understand that God is in control. You see, his main complaint was, God, why are you using the Babylonians? I mean, we're bad, but they're worse. And the angel's saying, no, look up, Habakkuk. Look up. Understand that God is in control. There's something about this image that's just so perfect for us. We're on our own way. We're just doing life. And God has to grab us by the noggin and go, hey, McFly, look up. Look up. God is in control. Now, let me tell you why this is so important. When you live like God is in control, it allows you to be civil in the midst of a conflict. And it is this belief that God is in control that allows us to take a measured stand. In a culture that's hostile to God, it allows you to be measured and wise and kind in a situation that can get pretty hot. Like when children are being pulled away from their parents at the southern border. Saw a lot of chatter about this on Facebook this week. And I'm not going to name names, but y'all, some of y'all need to dial it back. Need a more measured stand. Is it wrong for people to break laws that they don't know about? Yeah. You ever been pulled over for speeding when you didn't know the limit? Is it wrong to separate kids from their parents? Yeah. Any of you have children? Could we maybe take a more measured stand on this issue? Could we help people understand what the laws are before we chuck them in jail for it? Could we have compassion on families fleeing from a situation when we don't necessarily know the situation? What I, just, I see people retreating to the trenches and screaming at each other, and it ain't going to fix the problem. We need people who can be wise and kind. We've got to be careful, though, because that can easily become an excuse to never take any kind of action. 
And fortunately, the second lesson in this text protects us from that error as well. Here's lesson number two. You live sacred in a secular context. See, what Daniel and his friends do better than just about anyone else in the whole Bible is they effectively take a stand for the Lord. They live out the God-given values of the law of Moses in a culture that's hostile to those values and in some cases diametrically opposed. And so if you work in a place that is opposed and hostile to Christian values, or if you're in a family where their family values don't line up to God's family values, you better listen up for the next few weeks. See, these young men lived a sacred life in a secular context. So how did they do that? Well, I want you to notice the seven qualifications given to them in verse 4 through 5. All right? This is important. First of all, it says that they're young. That means that they're probably under age 20. These are teenagers that this is happening to. Okay? It says the text says they're healthy. Now, that doesn't mean that they don't have the flu. It means that they're fit. You know, that they're, they're in good shape physically. It says that they're handsome. It says that they show aptitude for all kinds of learning. They're mentally agile. Their, their, their brains are still flexible, probably because they're still pretty young. They can just they can learn whatever they need to learn, all right? It says that they're smart. They're well-informed. It says that they're wise. Can you imagine a teenager being wise? These are exceptional young people. And the text says they're qualified to serve. They're servant-hearted. Now, barring the presence of the Holy Spirit, this is about as good as it gets for a human being, right? <laughs> like, that's... That's like, everybody wants to be that. But the key designation, the main way that they're able to live this sacred life in a secular context is that last statement. In verse 4 we read, or verse 5 rather, they're qualified to serve. What that says in the original language is that literally, those who have the strength in them to stand in the palace of the king. The word translated serve is literally the word for stand. And it's sometimes used in a technical sense to talk about serving in a, in a high-profile governmental role. All right? So these guys have the strength in them to stand. We also see the same word pop up at the end of verse 5 and the end of verse 19. In, in both times, it's the same phrase. It's translated service by the NIV, but, but it's literally the word for stand. In both verse 5 and verse 19, the phrase, it, it literally says that they have, they're able to stand in the face of the king. See, this king's servant, Ashpenaz, picks these guys. And there's really more than just the four, all right? These are the four exceptional ones out of the larger group. But he picks them. Um, and when they, when they find out what's going to be happening to them, what they're going to have to learn and do and, and stuff, they're, they're okay with that. But then he talks about what they're going to have to eat, and now we have a problem. Think about this. Daniel says, I don't want to defile myself for, with food from the king's table. Now, by the way, that's just a euphemism. He's not getting the king's leftovers from dinner, all right? It means that the, the government, the state, is providing their food. It's paying for it. And the king is deciding what they're going to eat. The king is choosing their menu, all right? Now, so what's the big deal there? Why, why, why does he want, not want to defile himself, which was kind of a sacred, sacramental word? Daniel is taking a very measured stand. He doesn't push back against any of the other stuff. You're going to have to live here and learn this language and do these things and learn all this stuff. Nope, he's totally, okay, okay. But then they talk about the food. He's like, whoa, hang on. So we go, well, why did he not want to defile himself? Is it because the food was sacrificed to idols? No, that's not the reason. It's, it, it, it's not the reason. Because presumably all the vegetables he would have eaten would have also been sacrificed to an idol. It's not just the meat. It's, the vegetables would have been too. I mean, the Hebrews had grain offerings, 
So is it because, well, it's not kosher. I, I can't have that. It's not kosher. No, it's not that either. Wine is completely kosher. He says, just water to drink, please. So it's not, it's not the Jewish dietary stuff. It's not that it was sacrificed to an idol. Is he making a political statement? Like, I can't eat the same thing the king eats. No, not really. It's, it, because I'll tell you why it's, it's not a statement. It's private. As far, as far as we know, the king never finds out about this. It's not like he's standing up in front of everybody and saying, I am not going to eat this disgusting Gentile food because I am holy. He's not doing that. He's not, it's not this political statement. He's not trying to do this. So what is going on here? Daniel approaches the official privately, asks for permission not to defile himself. The official says no. I want you to notice that the chief official, Ashpenaz, his operating assumption is this. Obviously, the Babylonian way is the best way, right? How could your food be better than ours? You need to understand that's the mental framework you're pushing back on in our culture when you take a stand. How could your Jesus way be better than our way? That's their operating assumption. And so Ashpenaz says no. Daniel feels strongly about this, though, so he finds another way. He's going to take a stand on this issue. He goes to the guard. He says, tell you what, let's do a test. Ten days. It's not going to be enough of a difference in ten days. If we don't look better in ten days, then fine, we'll, we'll, we'll do the food. If this is very, very measured. This is very weighed and considerate. And by the way, the, the guard probably, you know, it really wouldn't have put his head at risk. It's, this is, it's very measured, it's very weighed. By refusing to eat the food of the king, Daniel and his friends know that, that they will know in their own heart that it's not the king who's responsible for their flourishing. It's not the Babylonians who are responsible for them providing, uh, you know, doing things with excellence. It's going to be God. And you, if you want proof that our culture is broken, answer me this. Why is it that when we do the rightest right, people are shocked that it works out okay? Why is it that people are surprised? Like, wow, that really worked out well for you. Yeah, because I obeyed God. God is calling us to live a sacred life in a secular context. See, God will give you strength when you need it, and probably not a moment before. In his book, Against the Flow, Oxford professor of mathematics, Dr. John Lennox, notes that when God calls us to do something difficult, he gives us the strength when we need it, and not a minute earlier. And he talks about a time he had an opportunity to go to Russia and speak to some men who were studying mathematics in, in a gulag in Siberia, in Russia. And the guy describes the situation, and he says to Dr. Lennox, he said, you probably couldn't have handled that, could you? <laughs> and Lennox says, uh, no, I'm sure you're right. And then this Russian man, this believer says, nor could I. I am a man who fainted at the sight of his own blood, let alone that of others. But what I discovered in those camps was this. God does not help us face theoretical situations, but real ones. He said, like you, I couldn't imagine how one could cope in the gulag. But when I was there, I found that God met me exactly as Jesus promised his disciples when he was preparing them for victimization and persecution. And Dr. Lennox adds in his telling of the story, we can be confident then that the Lord will give us a sufficient amount of grace to handle whatever comes our way, whenever it comes our way, and not necessarily a moment before. 
See, what I've been driving at this morning is this. When you live a sacred life in a secular context, you can be righteous in your resistance. Pushing back against the secular context should not push you into sin. It nullifies the stand you're going to take. And when you lose your cool and you blow it with somebody and you sin with anger in your heart, it completely sucks the power out of your stand. You can be righteous in your resistance. And it is this belief that Jesus is calling you to live a sacred life in a secular context that requires that you take a stand. The belief that God is in control is what allows you to do this. The belief that he's calling you to live a sacred life in a secular context is what requires you to do this. In Matthew 10, 16, Jesus calls his disciples sheep. And the rest of the world he calls wolves. And he demands courage from his sheep to live among the wolves. And in the process, he gives them a strategy. He uses two more animal metaphors. He says, therefore... Be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. We are to be innocent, kind, and shrewd, wise, as we live secular, sacred lives in a secular context. Did you hear what I was telling you this morning? When the people of God take a stand, it must begin with wisdom and kindness. And the only way you're going to do that is through the power of the Holy Spirit in your life that you gain when you respond to the offer of salvation that Jesus died on the cross in your place for your sin. And if you're here today and you don't have the Holy Spirit inside you, if you've never responded to that, maybe if you're hearing this for the very first time, in just a minute we're going to stand and sing together. And I would invite you to come to the front. We'll be, have people down here ready to receive you. And you can receive the Holy Spirit of God inside you who will give you the ability to stand. He will give you the power and the strength by the power of God in you to take a stand for what's right in wisdom and in kindness in a culture that's forgotten God. Maybe you've got an area of your life where you need to take a stand. And you want someone to pray with you. We'll have prayer folks down here who will pray with you and for you about an area where you need to take a stand for Jesus. And maybe this week, you tried to take a stand, you blew it. You didn't take a righteous stand. You took a self-righteous stand. And when we do this invitation, some of you might not need to come forward. You might need to step out in the hall, make a phone call, shoot an email, text message. Hey, I'm really sorry. Will you forgive me? I don't know what your need is. I'm going to ask you to respond as God leads you today. Let's stand together and sing this morning.